You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Um, we're starting our new series in the book of Exodus. Uh, those of you who have been with us for a little while know that we finished up our series on the story of Joseph. We were in Genesis 37 through 50 for, for a time, and um, from the interactions, the conversations that I've had with folks, it was a blessing. It was the right messages for the right time in our church life, especially all the things we were going through. And so we're just going to continue on into... Um, the next book in God's story here in God's people. And I pray genuinely that this would be a great blessing for you as well. We would learn together. We would grow together. And so um, in, your, in the weeks to follow, please be reading Exodus on your own, making observations, writing down some notes, writing down questions, but reading through it as often as you're able so that we're all kind of coming prepared and our hearts ready to receive from the Lord. So let's pray together as we open God's word. Father, we thank you for everything you give to us. All the good things, all the the gifts that you provide. Truly, our salvation is only from you, and we're thankful, Father. Thankful that we can celebrate good things and milestones in the life of this body. And Lord, we're thankful for even some of the difficult things that you allow in our lives. As we've seen in the story of Joseph, Lord, you meant it for good. And and Lord, help us to continue to see how you work as we move into the next part of your story, our story. Help us to not be naive, Lord, to not be closed off from your sovereignty over all things, that you have the, the right and the power to do whatever you please. And it's not a bad thing because you are good and you are holy and you are perfect. And you are loving and you are compassionate and you are mercy and you are full of grace and you are full of justice. And so, Lord, you deserve all of our glory. You deserve our trust, Lord, and we put our faith in you. It's because we put our faith in someone who's faithful. And when we worship, Lord, it's because you are worthy to be worshipped. So thank you, Lord, that as we move into the next story here, Lord, we get to know you more. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in the, in the texts that we're about to read. Help us to understand, Holy Spirit, please help us to understand what you have written through human authors. And Lord, help us to obey the things that are clear in the scriptures, the commands you've given us, the way we are to live, the people that you've called us to be. Help us not to be ignorant of those things. Help us not to be indifferent to those things, but to take this life you've given us in Christ and your name that needs to be lifted high in this world. Help us to take that seriously. Thank you so much for the opportunity to worship as your people. Lord, help me in my limitation and inability to be clear your Holy Spirit speak to your people and help us to walk out of here transformed, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
When you think about Exodus, maybe some of the images that are, are brought to mind are a lot of the, the, the Bible stories you learn like in chapel kids ministry or in, in, in Bible class or some of the children's books or even some of the cartoons, some of the movies that are out there, all of the, the spectacular miracles that took place, right? So when you think of Exodus, you think of, of what? You think of the, the burning bush, right? God's speaking through the burning bush, and you think of uh, the plagues and, that come upon Egypt, and you think of the staff turning into a serpent and the Nile River turning to blood, and, and you think of, maybe you think of God's power, you think of a, a stubborn pharaoh, you think of a Moses who is not eloquent in speech and doesn't really want to talk, and so... He has to bring Aaron along to do that. Maybe you think of some of the other bigger parts of Exodus. You think of the parting of the Red Sea, right? God's people walking on dry ground and then the water coming over and destroying the Egyptian army that follows. Maybe you think of the Ten Commandments and, and with that and this beard, you're thinking Charlton Heston, right? And you're thinking movies and um, maybe, maybe if, if you're a little younger, you're thinking the, the Prince of Egypt, the Disney production. Right? So we're bridging generational movie genres here together. So maybe you're thinking about all these things and there's, there's enough imprinted on your mind. You think you know the story and you, you get the general premise of it, but maybe you haven't really read it in a while because you, you think you know it. Right? That's kind of what happens with the scriptures. Well, I, I remember that or I know that. But once you start reading it again, in light of the growth that you've had, maybe you've been spending some time in the New Testament and and the idea of deliverance of sin, reconciliation to God, communion with God, the idea of covenants, the idea of Christ being a, a sacrifice. Maybe those things start to come more alive as you start to read through the Old Testament again. So my hope is that we start to connect the dots. This is one unified story. The Old Testament points us toward the need for a Savior. The New Testament talks about that Savior who has come and who will come again. It's all connected. And Exodus is one of those books that really carries um, with it a lot of connections to Christ and to the salvation story that we know so well in the New Testament. There's a lot of connection there. And so when you think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you had to um, communicate what is the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus, could you do that in in a couple minutes? If one of the graduates that we just celebrated, if you guys are working your new job or you're in, a, in class somewhere and you're getting to know some folks and, and they see you out on a break walking around talking to yourself and they ask, what, are you okay? And you're, I'm just praying to the Lord, right? I'm just talking to the Lord. Well, who, who is that? What do you mean you're talking to God? And they ask you a question about your faith and do you have an answer for the hope that you have? Or maybe you're in class and someone sees you reading your Bible on break. And they might not know it because you're probably reading it on your phone, but maybe you bring the hard copy and just leave it there so people know that you're reading the Bible too. Our Bible reading, our expression of our faith has been lost with technology, unfortunately, to some degree. But maybe they ask you, why do you read that? that Does it really help you at all? I've read part of that, or I've had bad experiences with church, or... You know, I knew some Christians and they were terrible people, so it just must all be fake. It's all foolishness. There's some good stories in there, but yeah, that, that, stuff, that stuff really can't happen. The, the waves and the, the waters can't part and people can't walk on dry land. Well, your, your, your premise is, 
you're, you're jumping into a miracle without understanding the God of miracles. If God created everything, if he's truly the author of everything, if he has no beginning and has no end, if he's ever existing, he's the almighty God who can speak and create everything out of nothing. If he can do those things, then why can't he take what he created and, and make a little path for his people, right? Why can't he bring some, some plagues to bear on those who he's judging? Why can't he do miracles? There's even some Christians who don't believe the Old Testament is really, their stories are they're analogies of, of good principles, but they couldn't really happen. Well, then you don't know the God of the Old Testament. You don't know the God of the Bible. He can do anything. If he's worthy of our worship, if he's worthy of our praise, it's because he is other, he is holy, he is able, he is powerful. He is the reason that we have hope in this world. And if you look around, all that mankind can do is break everything. Right? It's all we can do. Even with our best intentions, we break things, we make noise, we, we can't solve problems. Have you ever been trying to be real quiet, coming down in the morning? The quieter you try to be in the kitchen, the more noise you make, right? The more careful you try to be and someone says, hey, be careful, you're more likely to drop that thing. We just, we don't, even with great intentions, we break everything. Why? Because of sin. Sin has broken everything. The Bible says that sin has separated us from God for eternity, forever. And we can't earn our way back to him. We can't bridge that chasm. Because God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. We inherited sin and we choose to sin. But God made a way for us. He knew we were in bondage. He knew we were in slavery. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to free us, to free the captives, and to free us from sin, and to free us to a life with him forever. Because even in freedom, human beings don't know what to do with it. Right? We're given the freedom to do something, and then we go and we mess it up. Right? We take our liberty, and if it's not something that we're submitting to the Lord, we will sin in that liberty. We will take it to the extreme. We do it every time. And so we need his help in everything. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Those of us who have children know that it's good for us as parents to protect, to love, to guide, to tell them, no, don't touch that. Yes, you can do that. There's freedom in the protection of a loving father and mother. There's freedom in the protection and the provision of a loving heavenly father who sent his son to die for us so that we might truly be free to live as we were meant to live and to be with him forever. That's the story of Exodus. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's, it's why we are here this morning as God's people. It's why we celebrate. God's people were suffering. They were in bondage. And God heard them. And he sent a deliverer to bring them out of their bondage, to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. That he would be their God and they would be his people. He provided for them in, in every aspect. And as we go through Exodus, we're going to see lots of different themes running through here, but these are the main ones. That God's a God who saves. And he saves us for what? For his glory. 
And we see him providing laws, and we think those are, those are heavy burdens. But that's the, that's the necessity of living with a holy God. There's, there's perfection is necessary. And we see later in the New Testament that those laws were, were meant to show us our sin and that we can't save ourselves. We can't keep all the law perfectly. Only Christ could do that. And he did that on our behalf. So if we believe in Jesus, his righteousness, all the, all the law-keeping that Christ could do and his perfection was put into our accounts. And so when, when God looks at us, he looks at his son, if we believe on him, and we are justified before God. We are made right with him. We have peace with God. And so we'll, we'll, see, we'll see all of these themes up until the end, which is the tabernacle. And the very fact that God chose to indwell his people, to provide a place that was still crude when you think of it from a heavenly perspective, but to provide a tabernacle, a tent, a place for God to dwell and rules for that to take place, but a place because he, he wanted to be with his people. It's amazing. So we're going we're to look at that as we, as we walk through Exodus together. So please read um, as, as we go along here. Those are some of the major themes. Um, we know that Moses wrote Exodus. We see multiple times in Exodus itself, in chapter 17 and 24 and 34, God's telling Moses, write these things down. So we know he could write. He could actually write these things down. He was, a, um, he was actually a son of Egypt. He grew up in the Egyptian courts. He was able to communicate, and so God asked him to do those things. But we also see Jesus, and I'll, I'll have a PowerPoint that we'll put online with, with all the notes, so um, if you miss any of these, um, they'll be available to you. But we even see Jesus um, giving Moses credit for his book in Matthew 12, verse 26. The Sadducees were coming to him, and they say that there's no resurrection, and they're talking about divorce and, um, and remarriage. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and of the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so Jesus is correcting the Sadducees about the resurrection, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have physically died, but they still exist in eternity with God. Right? There, there is a resurrection to come. And uh, Jesus says, didn't you read Moses' book? Remember that story about the bush, right? And, that, and instantly they knew what he was talking about. They knew the story too, just like us. And so he's giving Moses credit for the book and for that story. And so we see some verification of authorship through um, different um, kind of pointings from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 is another place where we see Christ's name invoked. And once again, there's these connections to Jesus and all these things. First Corinthians 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So our fathers, it's our story, it's the story of Exodus. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock 
that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so we see that, that Christ being present in not only the foreshadowing of his, of his coming and of his sacrifice, but Christ is present because Christ is God, and these are his people, and this is his story of deliverance. And we see Moses being a type of Christ. Um, he was a savior. He himself was rescued from his enemies at birth. We see a, a behind-the-scene cosmic struggle taking place. The same old story. So when, when Jesus was about to be born, what was Herod doing? Right? He was trying to stop the birth of Christ. And what is Pharaoh doing in the midst of all of this? He's trying to stop whatever God was doing um, by killing the firstborn sons. And we see God circumventing once again the plans of the evil one. God's sovereignty is on display here. And in Romans 6, we see the whole picture of being slaves to sin versus slaves to righteousness, being brought out of Egypt, being brought into the company of God's people. These are all good things. These are all kind of illusions and connections. Ultimately, it's a God-centered story. He's the main character. He's the great I am. He's the one who reveals himself in power and in might, and his name is the one to be exalted through this whole story. And Exodus ultimately is to be remembered. Right? Some of, some of the fantastic stories in here, because it's to be remembered. If you look at the, the, the rest of the Psalter, some of the other Psalms, some of the Proverbs, what are they, they're always pointing back to because God brought them out, right? Because God brought them out of Egypt. He keeps going back to this foundation. He's the God that saves. And so we see this idea of being remembered even at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. God wants to establish the reason why these other things are good, the reason why these laws are necessary, because I'm your God and I brought you out. Remember your slavery. Remember your suffering. Remember that you cried out for help. I'm the God that saved you. And so here's how you are to live now. They were saved to bring glory to God. God was forming a people for himself. And so that's kind of the, the general background moving into this. And as we, as we start with uh, chapter 1 here, um, in the Hebrew, there's actually a conjunction that begins the story, the, the word and. So Moses had written Genesis. He's written Exodus. It's just a continuation of the story. Sometimes we get fixated on the titles and the chapters and the verses and don't understand this is a continuous story of God's people and God's salvation. So, um, so we finished off with uh, the death of Joseph, 110 years old, and then really we can just move in by saying, and, and then we'll, we'll begin with uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's Thor cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We see at the beginning here um, a continuation by providing the names of the sons of Jacob who came, uh, the family that came from Canaan over to Egypt. And we remember that story. It's, it's partly to, I think, invoke our memory of, okay, how did they get there again? What was, the, what was the first part of the story? And we know Joseph's story. We know what God did, even though his brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good and to save many people. And that's what happened. And because of Joseph, because of Jacob, because of the family, because of the 70 that, that had arrived, Egypt continued to be blessed. They continued to prosper. Things were good. They had their land in Goshen, and they were able to, to multiply and to be fruitful. So part of this invokes our memory. Part of it, as, as we read these names now, if you've studied this along with us, now you know some of the story behind the names, right? When you see Reuben, what do you remember? You remember some, some problems in the family, right? Some incestual adultery going on, some cowardice, some firstborn abdication of leadership and losing his place. We remember some of these things. And then you remember Simeon and Levi. We remember that they're murderers. They're mass murderers based on the story. And Judah and the things that he did and running away and, and, and being with the, what he thought was a prostitute was really his daughter-in-law. And just, you read those things, they should now invoke in you a sense of if God can use these people, if God can grow this family and protect them from themselves and from other people, if God can take 70 of these types of people and place his love on them, and grow them, and provide for them, then he can do that for us. Right? It should bring an encouragement. It should bring some sense of God's amazing, and his love is just based on who he chooses to love, who he desires to love. And we see this family multiplying, filling the entire land. We don't have numbers at, at the moment, but a little bit later we will see numbers. So why does God give us numbers? Why does he give us 70 again? And then why later does he give us other numbers? Because he wants us to see what we're talking about here. He's given us an example, an application. And when Egypt, I'm sorry, when Israel is leaving Egypt, there's 600,000 men, able-bodied men, on foot. So they have to be able-bodied if they're on foot, and they have to be military age probably. So that didn't even include, it says, women and children. So 600,000 men on foot, and then you have the women, you have the children, you have maybe older men or people that, that can't walk that kind of distance. Scholars believe they estimate probably somewhere in the range of 2.4 million people. So in the span of 430 years, you go from 70 to 2.4 million. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty good growth curve, right? If you do the math on that, I'll let one of you guys do the math on that. That's, that's quite a few new births every year, even if people are passing away and 
God's making them fruitful with these people, with this family tree that we just talked about, that we could point to each one of them and say, that guy messed up big time. That was terrible. I can't believe he's still around. I can't, right? And sometimes we look in the mirror and we point to ourselves and say, I, I don't even know what's, what's the purpose here. God can't use me. He can't love me. He can't forgive me. And that's not what the story tells us. It's just the opposite. He can and he does and he will. And so we see those, those people, hopefully that reminds us. And Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died, and his brothers, and all that generation. And it reminds us that death comes to all of us, no matter how prosperous, no matter how much God uses us. It's coming. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now we're invoking God's promise. We're remembering what God had said he was going to do. Remember, he started this back in Genesis Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abram. It's interesting, after God, because of the wickedness of man, because of the sinfulness of man and all the terrible things that were taking place, God wipes out the entire planet with a flood, except for what Noah and his family. And he starts over, and then he promises never to do that again. Instead, as the, as the nations begin to grow again and propagate the earth, Instead of wiping them out and starting over with their people, he takes the people from within that group and he draws them out to bless the nations. And if you actually look at Noah's family tree, how God started after the flood, it was with 70 people as well. Same number. That can do amazing things. And then he called Abram. There was nothing in and of Abram that that was somehow earned or deserved of God's calling, but he did. And he, and he said in, in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That sounds like a like a pretty good deal, right? You would probably take that one. You would pack up and you would move. It's, it's, it sounds amazing. And this God is speaking personally to him. And then we see the covenant with Abram in chapter 15 being expounded here. Chapter 15 in Genesis, verse 5, God brought him outside, which I still love that part of the text. How, do you, how does God bring him outside? It's just it's so personal, right? And said, look toward heaven and the number of stars, and number the stars if you are able to number them. So look at the stars. There's no light. There's no traffic light. Whatever he's seeing, all of them that you can see. Right? See if you can number those stars. Obviously, you can't do that. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Belief, faith was counted as righteousness. And then in verse 12, Chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the sun and God down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking pot, fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he's showing this, I'm going to give you this land. This is my promise. I'm going to make you into a, just a great nation. Your name's going to be great. The people are going to, you're not going to be able to count them. This is the land I'm going to give them. This is all God's promise to Abram. And Abram believed him. But part of that, if you, if you caught it, they're going to first, they're going to sojourn in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be servants. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. This is part of God's purpose. He's letting him know, pass this on. This is coming. This is going to happen. There's a reason for it. And we see that. We see Jacob talk about it. We see Joseph at the end of his life. He's passing this on. Um, the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's, he's reminding them this is what's going to happen. He's going to bring you out, but there's, there's going to be affliction. There's going to be suffering. And so Israel was prosperous according to God's purpose and plan. They were fruitful. They, they grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. But Israel was also persecuted and oppressed. Still prospering numerically as they grew, they were persecuted, they were oppressed, still according to God's plan. And once again, as we read the scriptures, we have to know the God that we're talking about here. You need to read more of what God says about himself. He's revealing himself here. That he is good, that he is just, that he is fair. Sometimes we see this, and why did God allow the suffering at the hand of Pharaoh? Why did he allow this? These are his people. Why did he allow this suffering? Well, we can't see the whole picture. We're not high enough. We're not powerful enough. Why did God allow suffering for his own son? There was a plan, there was a purpose. There was a good result. God meant it for good, for the salvation of those who would believe. Without it, we're lost. We have no hope. And so we look at the suffering of Christ, and we're thankful for that. Even as, as terrible as it was, we're so thankful for that. Can we look at the suffering of the Israelites? Can we look at our own suffering can in some way we remember the testimony of God, that God brought us through something else in the past. And when we look back at it, we remember how bad it was, but how faithful God was and how much we grew through that. We're not the same person. We're more like Jesus now. We're stronger now in our faith because of what happened to us. We remember that, and now we're in another stage of suffering. Can we remember that that suffering has a purpose, that there's some good in it because God is sovereign and he loves us? like a good father. We would never, in fact, we would give ourselves, we would never stop a surgeon or a doctor from removing something painful in our body, removing a, you know, 
a deep splinter, removing a blood clot, removing a tumor, anything that's stopping blood flow, that's stopping the body from being healthy, we would give ourselves to the table. We would ask for anesthetic, of course, and we would go for it, right? Get, get that out of me. Please, I'm, I'm in pain. This doesn't feel good. I'm not healthy. My life expectancy is shorter. I, I, there's too much. Please take this out. And they would go in with their scalp and they would take it out. When God wants to go in and remove the sin that still pervades our life, that still innervates how we act and how we live, and when he wants to remove that through a fatherly, loving discipline, through allowing some type of suffering, so that why? So that we would call out to him, we would depend on him, we would look to his power, not our own. We would, we would be... We'd be unwise to say, please just take this from me, Lord. I don't want it anymore. Even though that's what we naturally say. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. But we would be unwise to not remember the past, what God has done. Remember the suffering produces many things, as James talks about. So that we're lacking in nothing. So that we're complete. So why did God allow suffering at the hand of Pharaoh? He had a plan. He, he told Abram, this was coming. They're good at your... I'm, I'm going to do all these amazing things. You're going to leave in prosperity. You're going to leave with a lot of, but, but you're going to be afflicted for 400 years. Why did God do this? Let's take a, let's take a look at just three things from chapter or verse eight through 14 that I kind of pulled out as, as some of the why I already talked about a little of it. Verse eight says, now there arose a new King over Egypt that did not know Joseph. And he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What we see here is a, um, once again, that, that cosmic struggle. Uh, the pharaohs believed that they were the incarnate um, son of Ray, the sun god. They believed that they were gods. In the pantheon of all the other gods in Egypt, they believed that they were the, the God, the chosen one to rule, and that they had godlike powers. And so Joseph had come up against a pharaoh that um, allowed him to be in a place of authority, allowed him to be protective of his own people, but really it was because God invoked that on that pharaoh by giving him dreams and giving him no other choice, right? God was the one moving in those directions. This Pharaoh did not know Joseph, didn't know his history. These people are too much. We need to get rid of them. And there was definitely an economic component to this because he, he's scared of how powerful they are and how many they are, but he also doesn't want them to leave. We don't want them to fight with our enemies, but we also don't want them to leave the land. So there was some economic prosperity. There was some kind of value they were bringing, even as the nation of God blesses other nations. There's some value that, that was taking place. So his, his plan was to just push them down, to put heavy burdens on them, to create slaves out of them so that he can still get value from them but then don't have to fear them as much. And, and the key verse there for me is, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. This idea of dealing shrewdly is to act wisely, to show oneself as wise. I'm going to be really wise here. I'm going to make a really awesome decision that, that no one can thwart because I'm Pharaoh and no one can, no one can contend with me. And this is, we're going to deal really shrewdly with them so that they, we're going to stop them from growing. So we're going to, we're going to be harsh with them and be ruthless with them and put burdens on them. 
And the burdens, a lot of people believe, were also financial burdens so that they had to give themselves into servitude and become slaves. So he, he puts all kinds of physical burdens on them and financial burdens on them. And what does he want to do? He wants to break their spirits. He wants to rob them of their hope, their vigor for life. He wants to maybe ruin their health, shorten their actual lifespan, discourage them from marrying and having children because those children are going to be born into slavery. Maybe he just wants to break them and so they'll assimilate more into the Egyptian culture and just be like the country and, and really be on their team. Whatever his reasons, he, he acted shrewdly. He can, he can foresee all the great things that are going to take place from this. And what happens? Because he wanted to stop them from multiplying. <clears throat> but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. You can't thwart God's plans. This, Pharaoh is fighting against God. He, does, he just doesn't understand that. He just doesn't know that. <laughs> These are his people. This is his purpose and his plan. And Pharaoh's fighting against God, and he's not going to win. So what was God doing in all this? God was... From what I was kind of reading, first point, God was destroying the wisdom of the wise. He was destroying the wisdom of the wise. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The good news of Jesus, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God has a a way of using those things that are weak to show his strength, confounding the wisdom of the world. This was once again a religious war. Pharaoh wanted to have sovereignty over the Israelites. And so he decided to put them in slavery, to enslave them. To, to exercise his right and his rule. But God used it for good. Think about how he does this. This is that cosmic chess game. No matter what move you make, you're, you're, you're going to lose. Right? By enslaving Israel, by forcing them to hard labor, by making them miserable, making their life bitter, what was the one thing they wanted now even more than ever before? To leave, <laughs> Right? to go. They were prospering there. They had land. They, had, they were growing all over the place. They were doing well. Egypt was prospering as a result of them. But now, under this hardship, they're going to cry out. And we'll see this later, but in chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then God put a plan in place, and he started the ball rolling for the deliverance of his people. So the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to accomplish, he was working against himself. He wanted them to stay put, and instead he just caused them to go. He didn't realize he was doing it. This is man's wisdom. He made them long for the very thing he's trying to prevent. He thinks he can outwit God. He thinks he can outplay him. If we look at Psalm 105, verse 25, actually start in verse 23. Remember, this is a psalm. It talks about a man being sent ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold a slave. So the, the story of Joseph's in there. And in verse 23, 
In Psalm 105, it says, Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. This was God doing all of this, right? In verse 25, he turned their hearts, the Egyptian hearts, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. God actually turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily. So they think they're being shrewd and they're being crafty and they're figuring in all these cool things. This was God allowing this to take place. This was God acting in his sovereign will. Just like we looked back at the brothers of Joseph who hated him so much and out of their hatred, they formed a plan to kill their brother. And through other events in that same moment, they decided not to kill him and throw him instead of the cistern. And, and then the, the Ishmaelite caravans coming by, so they sold him to slavery in the, into Egypt and pocketed a few bucks and went on their way. And then they lied to their father. And they had evil in their hearts. They, they, had to, they were going to do something anyway. God knew that. God saw what they were going to do. He decided to use it for good, that the ultimate, the ultimate ending here was a good thing for Joseph, for the family, even for the brothers, for the salvation of many. These brothers were free agents. They had the the choice to make, and they made choices. But God intervenes providentially in all of our decisions. He, He brings about everything for our good. And we don't understand how. And we don't understand exactly how all of that works with man's free agency and with with, with God's sovereignty, but he's God. He does know how it works, and he is good, and he is just, and he is fair, and he is holy, and he's perfect, and he is loving, and he is compassionate, and he has mercy. And so he is trustworthy to take care of all of those pieces. We question God more than we worship him, don't we? When he has... He has explained everything that he's going to explain. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures. We know enough about him. And we're going to continue to learn as the Holy Spirit opens up our minds to the truth of scripture. But we question him far more than we worship him. And everything we read in here is moving toward a salvation for us, for our good, so that he can be with us. He can indwell his people. Our... our, our, (laughs) Our lack of faith, our mistrust is truly misplaced, and we need to be a people of the word so we know that. God used it for good. And and this is displayed in every aspect of our life right now. This parallel here was interesting to me, this Pharaoh trying to destroy the very people that are providing prosperity for him. What is happening in our country now? Everything, nothing is new, right? Everything is, is in here the history of man and how we, we mess everything up, how we break things, and how God saves us. What is our country trying to do right now? People are pulling down monuments, and, and once they get done with monuments that stand for something that they, they despise or hate, they just start pulling down every other monument that happens to be around, right? They want to fundamentally tear down the whole fabric of our society, erase our history, It's the very society, it's the very history, imperfect as it might have been, because we're not perfect, but it's the very history that's providing them the freedom to be able to voice their opinions, to be able to say something about injustice, to be able to live out what they believe in this. It doesn't make sense. They're pulling the statues down on themselves. There's no wisdom there. 
This is what, this is what we do to ourselves. And if you think there's a solution in some government office, at some ballot box, if there's a solution in some newspaper or some protest, apart from God, you're wrong. And so as God's people, we need to pray that God intervenes in all these things, that he's, pray that he is working. We need to cry out for help. What is our role, Lord? And we ultimately are to bring him glory and to show people that this isn't working. There's, there's no hope in anything that you're doing. Because as soon as man brings down one monument, they erect the next one of, to themselves. It's the nature of pride. <clears throat> There's such a great need for the gospel to go out right now. This is a picture that we're seeing in our country of enslavement to sin of bondage to sin, of darkness of the mind that can't see a way out. There are people that are drowning and just pulling everyone down with them. We are to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, to bring light to the world. And yet we spend more time questioning God than worshiping him. More time not trusting him to give us the words to speak, the power to profess. And that's exactly what he promises. And so Pharaoh, like any other historical leader, trying to thwart the purposes of God, trying to build monuments to himself, trying to control, God says, no, I'm in control. And we see that God's people, when oppressed, And in suffering, God will often grow and help them to thrive. Spurgeon has a a great quote about this. And I guess part of my point here is do not be discouraged. Look at the world. Look at what's happening. You don't need to be happy about it, for sure. But don't be discouraged because God's in all of this stuff. He's, He's sovereign over it, and he's good. And if he's allowing suffering to come even to our country, even to our doorsteps, there's a reason for it. Abram, I'm going to make you a great people. This, you're going to be blessed, and everyone's going to be blessed through you, and you're going, to take, you're going to come out of Egypt, I'm going to give you this great land. But there's some suffering that's involved in this. There's, it's purposeful. It's for you. It's for my glory. Can you see that? Spurgeon says, as it relates to suffering in the church, It's been repeated many times. He says, whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it, as he did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites, by making the aggrieved community more largely to increase. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. Hence, when after the death of Stephen, the disciples were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The result is thus given. Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. So too, when Herod stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church and kill James, the brother of John, with the sword, what came of it? Why, Luke tells us in almost the same words that Moses had used, the word of God grew and multiplied. Those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor by no means stayed the progress of the gospel. 
but strangely enough seemed to press forward for the crown of martyrdom. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than is when her foes were most fierce to assail and most resolute to destroy her. Even the the Reformation uh, never went on to so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. You shall find in any individual church that wherever evil men have conspired together and a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. Be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials you may be called upon to bear, and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ. Be thankful. That's, that's the message that Paul gives us and James and the message that Spurgeon is conveying as he interprets the scriptures to be thankful, to remember. God was destroying the wisdom of the wise. Second thing he was doing, I already talked about this, was that he was helping his people. Suffering shows us the need for a savior. Right? It helps us to be to long for going home. Really, suffering shows us the need. Helps us to seek a savior. If we're not suffering, if we don't need God, then we're not going to cry out to Him. We're going to think that we can save ourselves. We are a forgetful people. Remember, as we go through the story, the Israelites—they've seen all this crazy stuff. They've seen God come in and do some pretty impressive miracles and pretty pretty horrific things to cause Pharaoh to let them go. And then even, even the Red Sea and drought, they've seen all this happen with their own eyes. And they get to the desert, and what do they do? They're, they're faithless, they're grumblers, they're idolaters. They turn away very quickly. They forget. This is our story. We're the same. Suffering helps us long for a Savior and for our heavenly home. In our sin, we look to self and in our worldly pursuits and pleasures. When we are living in our sin, we're not having the surgery done. That's elective. I'll I'll just deal with all the consequences later. When we're not allowing God to work in us, when we're not openly obeying him and not resisting him, because that's what sin is, we're just in rebellion, then we're going to look to our own worldly pleasures, our own pursuits. We're going to do our own thing. But in our suffering, we look for a savior. We look for our heavenly rest. And so when we look at this story, God, why did you make Israel suffer like that? Well, would Israel really want to go if God didn't cause some reason for them to go? He had a promise to keep. He had a place for them. He had something much, much better for them. But they were prospering there. It helped them to see that they had a need. It caused them to cry out. This was a good thing. God has much bigger plans for his people. He doesn't allow us to settle for the scraps on the floor. He wants us to sit at the banquet and dine with him. C.S. Lewis has a quote about this. You've probably heard from his uh, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. God knows this. God draws us out. Suffering helps us long for a Savior and for our heavenly home. And lastly, God was bringing glory to himself. These mighty acts of power, God was bringing glory to himself. Psalm 106, I'll go through a few scriptures and then we'll close. Psalm 106, verse 8, he says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He saved them. This is, this, this is the Exodus psalm. For his own name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And we see this throughout the book of Exodus. Exodus 9, 16. You don't need to turn there. Let me just um, go through these. And like I said, I'll put them on a PowerPoint for you. Exodus nine sixteen, Talking about Pharaoh and raising him up to be an opposing force. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God raised this up. He's doing all this so that he would show him his power, that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God cares about his glory. Exodus 14, 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You guys have all these gods, all these people that you worship, all these idols that you bow down to. Let's see if they can do what I do. I am the true God. I am the Lord, he says. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. He wants the glory. He's going after the glory. We see this also in, in uh, chapter 15, verse 11, and 24, 15 through 17. It's, it's reverberated in Romans nine seventeen. God cares about his glory. He's reminding his church, his people. He's reminding us who he is. He is the great I am. And when we say, is, is that a little bit selfish? Isn't that a little bit self-serving? I don't really like a God who's just after his own glory. Well, you're not God. <laughs> you know, if, if we understand the God of the Bible, once again, perfect, holy, other. He, we don't understand fully. We never will. He's unsearchable. But we do know that he is a good God, a good father that he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is full of grace, loving kindness, steadfast love toward those who love him. He is just, he is fair, he hears us, he answers prayer. He created us, we fell, we sinned against him, and yet he pursued us through his son Jesus Christ on the cross so that we might have life and have it to the full and have perfect joy for eternity with him. He wants to indwell his people. He wants to be with his people. He wants to reign and rule with his people. He doesn't need any of us. And yet he chose us and he chose to create us, save us, make, up, make us his own. He's the only one worthy of glory. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one who can truly save. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the gift of your word that you chose to reveal yourself through the Holy Scriptures and that your servant Moses was was called to write these things down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these are your words. This is your story, and it's our story as your people. Thank you that you loved us, pursued us. Thank you that the story of the Exodus, the story of exiting, departing Egypt was all part of your plan. You've taken us as you took your people Israel from slavery to salvation, from bondage, Lord, to a heavenly home, to a promised land, and we are waiting for you to return, Lord Jesus. We thank you that the truths of your scriptures are not a crutch. They're not just good words for some good things from a good teacher. They are from the Son of the living God, who is God himself. You created all things. You're restoring all things according to your good purposes and plan. And we can trust you because you're good. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, as the only means of salvation. He is the God-man, the mediator between God and man. He is the only one who could take away our sins. Thank you that he died. Thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose again on the third day. Thank you that the resurrection defeated death, took away the power of sin, overcame death, so now we can live a life with you for eternity if we just believe in you, Jesus, from the heart. Father, we're just, we're just grateful. We are overflowing with thanks, and we want to offer ourselves as living sacrifices in light of all that you've done. In view of all these great mercies, Father, help us to be your servants, to love you, to love people. As much as there is a voice of destruction moving through the streets of our world right now, Father, may there be a voice of hope that comes through your servants as we share the good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.